Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes of the restaurant industry? I'm Katie Osuna, the host of Copper and Heat, the James Beard award-winning podcast that explores the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. Each episode is a narrative deep dive asking questions like, why do we tip? Why are restaurants so financially precarious? Why are tasting menus a thing? And what do restaurant awards really say about what's good? Hear from chefs, restaurant workers, food anthropologists, and more. Find Copper and Heat wherever you listen. The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A taste of place, of time, of space, of memory. How do we find a place to belong, a way to look to the past and to build a future? My name is Dr. Anna Sulan-Mussing, and I hope to answer those questions as we explore taste and memory throughout this series. Welcome to Taste of Place a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. In our last episode, we traversed time, exploring the history of Pepper. On this third episode, From Farm to Luxor, we will cross space following the journey of Sarawak Pepper from the farm to our tables. We'll start in Sarawak, a place of origin, with the farmers and those that process peppercorns, and make our way to the restaurants of London. I speak with Professor Dr. Michael R. Dove, former member of the Malaysian Pepper Board Larry Siat, chef and restaurant owner Mandy Yin, and chef Thomas Heal, to learn about the journey of pepper. This is Dr. Michael R. Dove a professor of social ecology at Yale, who has done extensive research in farming in Borneo and Kalimantan, the Indonesian side. Pepper is my spice of preference, but it also has this incredible historic dimension. It became the curse of the historic kingdom of Banjar in southeastern Borneo. And not uniquely to that kingdom either, but it became something that a number of early Southeast Asian rulers said that they wanted to destroy. They wanted to prohibit the cultivation of. It carried this perceived mortal threat to indigenous kingdoms in the region, which is sort of incredible. And it's a story about colonialism and indigeneity and East and West and global trade. So a very timely story in some ways. That's what Pepper means to me. The story about Pepper from Borneo, where Sarawak is situated, is also a story about indigenous culture and the value we place on indigenous knowledge. I've worked a bit all over the Pacific and Asia region, but I've done most of my work 
and writing about two countries, Indonesia and Pakistan, and looking at the anthropology of agriculture and agroforestry in both places. Michael's research is in Sweden agriculture, also known as shifting cultivation, a pattern of farming that rotates the areas that are being farmed so that the soil can be left to regenerate. It is a practice that is still used by indigenous peoples of Borneo, also known as Dayaks. He became impressed with the depth of knowledge and effectiveness of their practices. It was such a, a perfect adaptation to a wet, very confusing and challenging rainforest environment in which you can't predict a lot of things. You have to kind of mimic the rainforest dynamics. Sweden is probably the historically the most successful adaptation ever devised to that environment. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the achievements of the Dayaks have long been downplayed as primitive and destructive by the non-Dayaks who govern Borneo. But as he dug deeper into his research, Michael discovered that despite being faced with the prejudices of ruling parties, the Dayaks had a rich history of international trade spanning back centuries. I talked with government officials that said, you know, these Dayak have a pre-monetary economy. They don't even know what money is. They engage in barter, but they know nothing about money or markets. And I was finding that Quite the contrary, they had been engaged in trade before rubber and pepper, in trade in native forest rubbers. I started to do historical research. That trade is ancient, particularly going to China. You know, before there was a Republic of Indonesia, China had linkages deep into the interiors of Borneo and other islands. So all of a sudden, you have a picture of people who have been engaged, in effect, in global trade for time immemorial. And indeed, historic records from China show that this trade goes back close to a couple of millennia. These things we're talking about, they speak to a sort of cosmopolitan character of these people which is precisely what is not seen by the wider world, even though, or perhaps especially because, smallholders were out-competing estates in both Malaysia and Indonesia. The idea of ancient trade with communities deep in the Borneo jungle is a familiar story to me, one that was told to me through the objects I grew up with. We have antique earthen jars and beads that are decorated with Chinese designs that are passed down generations, so I knew they must have gotten there somehow. With such a deep history of trade, it's no wonder that the Dayak farmers were quick to pick up growing pepper as a commodity. I was struck when I did my, my initial research on this by the fact that that pepper, like many commodities, many spices in particular, did not seem to be used locally in any sort of dishes. It was an export, a trade commodity, you know, par excellence. 
I think the Kanto used pepper, maybe brewing some liquors to give them added bite, but they did not use it on food. And that's an interesting part of the commodity chain involving this spice and others. Something grown for distant use by other people. I think this is also what makes pepper farming complicated. Over the years, I have visited many farms in Sarawak and have noticed that pepper isn't the only cash crop that these farmers grow. There is rubber, which can be tapped daily to provide a daily source of income, as well as palm oil fruits, which can be harvested weekly. These cash crops are grown in a system that emphasizes balance. It's solely for a little bit of cash to pay school fees or something like that. But that is an integral part, I think, of the farming system. Filling a place that a century before would have been filled by gathering resins and other non-timber forest products for the trade to China. I call these composite economies, and I think that's both traditional and ubiquitous. In other words, an economy with a subsistence sector that gives you food and a market-oriented sector that gives you some cash. You know, they had more than one arrow in their quiver. So if there was external turmoil and markets collapsed, they could still eat. To learn more about the pepper trade, I speak to Larry Siak, who used to be part of the Malaysian Pepper Board, a federal government organization responsible for the country's pepper industry. Larry is an Iban whose parents grew pepper when he was a child. My name is Larry Said. I am a retired government servant. I was formerly the deputy director general of the Malaysia Pepper Board. Our parents are pepper plumbers. My parents raised me from the cultivation of paper. It enabled us to pay for our school fees, to pay for our schooling. Paper is a cash crop. The benefit for planting paper to the rural community is immeasurable, I tell you. Formerly known as the Pepper Marketing Board, the Malaysian Pepper Board came into existence in 2007. At the time, the board realised that Sarawak pepper was facing increased competition from other countries entering the pepper trade, Vietnam in particular, and they needed to help farmers by promoting the pepper, and so they participated in European ingredient and food exhibitions, where the board got to meet international buyers. To encourage farmers to grow pepper alongside their other cash crops, the Malaysian Pepper Board also emphasises the advantage of pepper as a source of yearly bonus income. As I mentioned before, different cash crops can be harvested at different times, providing farmers with income at various points in the year. In Sarawak, pepper is typically harvested once per year, though it can also be harvested every six months in certain cases as well. By illustrating the benefits of pepper farming in this way, the Malaysian Pepper Board hopes to maintain a healthy supply of Sarawak pepper. Most Sarawak pepper, though not all, goes through the Malaysian Pepper Board. My understanding of the supply chain, for the most part, 
is that there is usually a general area manager that is appointed by the Malaysian Pepper Board who deals with a number of farms in a region. Through this manager, a price is agreed via the board based on the global price of pepper. The board then purchases and grades the pepper before exporting it. There are also private companies in the mix who can operate outside of this chain and export directly to buyers globally. Any pepper exported out of our country, the pepper board have to regulate whatever comes out. We have a regulation that any pepper to be exported from Malaysia, it must be graded. So there's a level of quality control. This quality control, as Larry explains, is Sarawak Pepper's selling point. The Malaysian Pepper Board Labs, which I have been to, have machines that meticulously process the pepper up to the microbiomes level. This does raise the price of pepper, of course, which the Malaysian Pepper Board ultimately determines. Larry says that setting the price is very important in making sure that the farmers aren't paid below the global market price. In his opinion, the Malaysian Pepper Board, which is a government organisation, is there to support the farmers, ensure that they're not being mistreated and to guarantee an exceptional quality of pepper. Pepper is one of the main agricultural activities in rural Sarawak. 98% of pepper from Malaysia is from Sarawak and 90% of Malaysian pepper is exported. But the ideal conditions in Borneo to grow pepper, as well as the flexible farming practices that support it, can also be a double-edged sword. A paper was published in 2020 in collaboration with the Malaysian Pepper Board and the University of Malaysia Sarawak, which was a critical review of the development and performance of the pepper industry in Malaysia. The paper found that the industry had not performed in the previous decades, as had been hoped with a decline in global pepper prices of more than 70% since 2015, which they reported had a huge effect on household incomes in rural Sarawak communities. This means that smallholders struggle with production and a lack of funds to invest and innovate their farms. It creates an ageing population as it is an unappealing commodity to farm and can affect the quality of the crop. Across the last four decades, there has been a lot of fluctuation in pepper prices, which reflects the rises and falls of pepper farms. The flexibility of rural farmers in Sarawak has meant that no farm is a monocrop of pepper. The average size of a pepper farm in Sarawak is 0.5 hectares, or 5,000 square metres. To those passionate about pepper like Larry, It's important for buyers and consumers to know and see where pepper comes from. During my time, we do bring in our buyers to Sarawak and bring them right to the farm. Especially the Korean buyers, the Japanese buyers and our buyer from Sweden. At that time, it was rainy season and our four-wheel drive could not climb up the hill. So I had to walk on foot to the longhouse, I think about more than two hours on foot. But they're not complaining. We are telling them, this is how difficult our farmers producing peppers. They're very loyal. After they've seen how the farmers produce, what they sell to them. I have always wanted to show people where and how Sarawak pepper is grown. 
When the opportunity arose in August 2019 to visit Kapit, the market town in Sarawak my family is from, with friends, I was so excited. Chef and restaurant owner Mandy Yin was among those who came along on the trip. I'm Mandy Yin. I am a chef restaurateur slash author slash food writer based in London. My restaurant is Sambal Shiok Lak Sabal, which is based in Highbury in North London. Originally, I'm from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I'm a Chinese-born Malaysian and have lived in London for over 20 years now, so most of my life. Mandy's debut cookbook, Sambal Shiok, the same name as her restaurant, was released at the end of 2021. Her restaurant is one of my most favourite in London, and she is originally from Malaysia. I speak to Mandy about Kapit, seeing another side of Malaysia from the one she knew, and what visiting the pepper farms was like for her as a chef and a restaurateur. What dish do you think of when you think of pepper? Bakute, which is a Chinese herbal pork soup. Lots of Chinese aromats, but definitely there's lots of black pepper and white pepper used in this dish with lots of garlic. It's just this round warmth, like a hug. I grew up in Petaling Jaya, a suburb of Kuala Lumpur, a massive cosmopolitan metropolis. And shamefully, I think many Western Malaysians, we've never been to Borneo. So flying into uh, Kuching, then traveling to Cebu, then taking the three-hour longboat journey upriver. Three hours upriver, that's a long distance. I remember opening Google Maps, we're in the middle of nowhere. It was humbling. It was just a privilege to have experienced that. Kapit was a fabulous little market town. The hustle and bustle, and it was just really amazing to see, you know, just people going about their lives and so many coffee shops. <laughs> that was what I loved too about Kapit. So clearly people love to eat there. So that resonated with me. It's a central hub for so many from the farms. They would travel there, they need to eat, and then they go back home. And actually the heat, Anna, it was so hot, <laughs> so hot. And going to the pepper farm, it was just incredible. The work that has to go into picking all the peppercorns and then harvesting and being able to listen to the farmers explain how hard it was and how actually little money they got for their crop and how expensive, for example, the first fertilizer cost. It's just eye-opening to realize you just take pepper for granted. I also, stupidly, didn't realize that white pepper is actually just black pepper, but with the husks having been painstakingly washed off in the river. That's also incredible. So it's definitely humbling how much work and time and how their lives really did center on their farm. It was so important to the farmers. It really was their cash crop and it was prized by them. It plays such an important role in their cooking as well. And I think the beauty of uh, Sarawak pepper is so beautiful, it's so strong that you don't need that much of it. At home, I just use ground pepper. It's so crap compared to proper Sarawak peppercorns and toasting it and then grinding it with a pestle and water. Pepper is not simply a commodity that sits on dining tables. I have noticed that those that work intimately with the pepper, where pepper becomes something you touch, taste and smell, you can't stop people talking about it. 
I love what Larry said to me at the end of our conversation. I still have fond memories of playing in the paper garden. I'm still passionate about paper. Anytime that conversation comes to paper, I'm always excited. I'm Jessamine Starr, a chef in Atlanta, and I love fruit so much, I started writing love letters to it. On this show, I'm exploring our love of fruit and what it says about us, people. Join me as I traverse the world of fruit, both through my own emotional meanderings and expand my hunger for more information while having discussions with farmers, scientists, chefs, and enthusiasts. Now we leave the pepper farms of Borneo and land in London, travelling to the restaurants that use Sarawak pepper to bring their dishes to life. I speak with Thomas Heal, a chef and owner of a vegan restaurant in London, and he shares what pepper means to him and his cooking, how he discovered Sarawak pepper and what he uses it for. My name's Tom Heal. I'm a chef and I work at a restaurant called Naif's. It's in Queen Road, Peckham, and I run that with my partner, Anne, and my two brothers. My mother's side of the family is all Swiss-German, and there's a very unique cheese from where my family comes from called Belpanole, and essentially that's like a hard ball of cheese, which kind of tastes a bit like a fresh cheese, and it's completely covered in cracked black pepper. So it's a very striking experience to eat, but it tastes like a fresh cheese, and it's very peppery. It's something which is hard to picture before you've tried it. Basically, from being a chef and working in kitchens, I had a vague awareness of high-quality, quote-unquote, varieties of pepper. A memory which I've got of, like, specifically sarawak pepper would be a point a few years ago where everyone was quite fixated with cacio e pepe. So that dish sparked an interest in black pepper varietals. Specifically, with sarak pepper, what was most exciting about it for me. The analogy I use is kind of like with coffee, where kind of coffee, again, can be something which is very ubiquitous. You kind of know what coffee tastes like, and you have this general sense of the kind of coffee flavor. Same with black pepper. And then you try a black pepper or a white pepper that's really exciting and really high quality, and it's been looked after, and it's been grown in the right way. And suddenly, it's got all these other flavors you didn't know were possible. I think that kind of complexity that was kind of intrinsic to it was kind of really exciting. So we use it on the menu quite often in a way that's bringing that focus and using it as like a spice blend, but with like one or two ingredients. So at the moment, we kind of use it in a spice blend, which is mostly sarawak pepper with smoked and dried jalapenos and also quite a lot of toasted camelina seed, which is a British seed that we get from Hobbadots. And essentially, very toasty, looks similar to a linseed, but it has a very specific flavor, um, which matches quite well with the woodiness of the black pepper. And we put that on breaded fried king oyster mushrooms. It basically, to me, creates what I would call a super flavor, where you, you can't see the differences, like the dividing lines between each of those different flavors kind of has that complexity. But I think that's like a nice way to show it off. I've always been interested to see how different people relate to pepper, from how it tastes to them to how they use it to cook. Here, Tom walks us through his impressions of what Sarawak pepper tastes like. 
which I find it quite mild, which I think lends it a really nice balance. And that balance is between lots of different flavors. Woodsy, kind of slightly smoky notes, quite a lot of acidity, which is really nice. And specifically something that kind of came to my head. And it was one of those situations where the flavor memory came to me as I was tasting it, which is like mango skin, literally the skin of a mango, where it kind of becomes quite astringent. Woodsy, citrusy, smoky and fruity kind of aspect to it. Something that's really nice about it is the sweetness. In terms of tasting pepper, what's really fun about it is that time delay between the smell and then like the first taste and then lingering taste. I think that makes it really fun to eat. Our conversation about pepper and spices led us to conversations around provenance, storytelling and how you cook with ingredients not local to you or outside of your heritage. For Tom, it is all connected. It is about being aware of your responsibilities, understanding what is baked into the capitalist nature of running a business and how you present yourself. I think specifically, providence is really important in general because it kind of, as a chef, gives you a sense of connection and excitement and uh, respect for not just the kind of raw ingredient, but also for the cultural background of where that's come from. Um, I think all of those things are inseparable, really. And it's only good for a chef to learn about those things because it gives you so much more inspiration with cooking. When cooking, Tom looks to dishes and inspirations from where ingredients come from, which helps in understanding the nature of the ingredient and the flavours. For Tom and his family, who are from Cornwall and have a British and European heritage, it is about making sure that their approach is also rooted in what is authentic to them and their histories. But in his current life as a chef, it is ensuring that the creative work isn't appropriating a sense of knowledge or experience outside of his own. I think specifically our goal is to create a type of food, like a type of cooking, which is quite pleasurable and sensuous, where lots of the vegan cultures or the cultures which are predominantly vegetables and less meat and fish are not Western cultures. And they are separate from the culture that I grew up in and my family grew up in. So I think all chefs could consider because cross-cultural borrowing I think is something which just happens naturally and it's good and it's totally fine if it's done respectfully. But I, I wouldn't want to open a restaurant that was taking too heavily from a Buddhist culture or from like Ethiopian culture, if that's not my culture. This approach is also reflected in how Tom and his family talk about the food and the ingredients they use, how those elements are part of the story and storytelling of their restaurant. In fact, how I found Tom was through a food writer who had spotted on Instagram a post of Naif's account mentioning they use Sarawak pepper in a dish. The menu is the way that you interact most frequently with the customers. There's not really a better or worse way to use something, as long as there's not problems with the supply chain. It's a bit of a shame that with Providence, it's so often been used as kind of a customer-facing thing. This is where this thing comes from, and you might write that on a menu almost like an advertising thing, like this product is high quality because we know where it came from. Whereas I think the most direct benefit to the customers is probably secondary in terms of providence because it gives the chef 
the tools to be able to make a happy and engaged kitchen and an interested kitchen, which is conscious about what it uses and why it uses it and where it comes from. And then that makes the food better. That's a secondary effect. For example, in terms of sarak pepper, we haven't got that written on our chalkboard menu or our menus that we give out in the restaurants, but it is the kind of thing we would talk about on Instagram. I think there's some kind of profound difference there in terms of what function those things are serving. It's something which, for us primarily, we want to know our relationship to it. As a chef, I'm sure I get told a lot of stories about a lot of ingredients which get condensed and they get rounded off. They're not lies, but they are maybe simplified versions of things. And of course, our conversation naturally turned to nostalgia. With black pepper, I think it is a very nostalgic flavor to me. So now if I'm tasting a black pepper and I'm trying to get the complexity, part of it is this thing where it's like, yeah, that's something that was my grandma's table where there's the pepper and the salt shaker and it's something which you'd be putting on like potatoes. North of Tom's restaurant, Naif's, and across the Thames, we meet up once again with Mandy Yin at her restaurant, Sambal Shiok. As Mandy specialises in laksa, I of course wanted to talk to her about Sarawak laksa and wanted her take on what Sarawak pepper tastes like. Laksa is a seafood-based noodle soup, and throughout Malaysia there are many regional versions, and the range is huge. For example, Asam laksa, or Penang Asam, is a sour, tangy fish laksa from Penang. And Sarawak laksa has coconut milk in it with prawns instead of fish and doesn't have the sourness. Compared to Tom, when Mandy talks about the flavour of Sarawak pepper, she characterises it as being quite strong. My Peranakan side really loves chilli heat, so that's my default setting in terms of my palate. I crave chilli heat. Whereas when we're eating in Sarawak, and I first tasted the laksa, it was less of the chilli heat and more of this round pepperiness. And it's fascinating because the cuisine is, from what I saw on our brief trip, actually not a lot of chilli whatsoever other than the Sarawak laksa which didn't have as much chilli kick, say, as a Penang Asam Laksa, but quite muted and more balanced. And I think I would describe the pepper flavour from Sarawak as being ultra-floral, smoky, woody. I think pepper is one of those things that you really need um, your nose for. You just really get the smell at the back of your throat when you consume it, rather than the taste. Personally, I think Sarawak pepper's distinctiveness makes it strong as opposed to dominant or overpowering. In that sense, you can add a little or a lot to your dishes. It's all up to your taste. There was a soy-braced egg tofu dish that we had a couple of nights. And again, the strong flavour profile there, other than the soy sauce, was the white pepper. Beautiful and spicy, but not in the chilli sense that I'm more used to from uh, Western Malaysia. Another use of the white pepper clearly was the Iban farmers themselves. We were treated to this amazing feast. One of those dishes that we had was a manok panso, which is the chicken cooked in bamboo. And so again, quite simple, but very clean, nourishing flavours with again the pepper and laksa leaves thrown in there with a bit of onions. 
So just very simple but very comforting is how I would describe Pepper. Inspired by the dishes from our trip, Mandy created recipes which appeared on her menu at the restaurant with detailed descriptions of the inspiration, the pepper and the trip we took. These recipes also feature in her cookbook with the same sensitivity of explanation and background information. As a Malaysian, I was curious about Mandy's thoughts of nostalgia from that trip, if any, or was it so different from Western Malaysia that it felt like a whole new place? It made me think of my parents and them growing up in the 50s and 60s in Malaysia, in Petaling Jaya, when it was much less developed. And my dad, actually, he grew up in Malacca. He's often told me I used to go jump into the river and that's how I learned how to swim. That was just the feeling that I got in Sarawak. People living off the river, especially the Iban in their longhouse and in the forest. It just made me more appreciative of the simpler things in life. It was the atmosphere that you felt walking around Kapit and even Kuching. You meet up for breakfast and then go to the market, go off to another coffee shop and have a chat. What was the phrase? We were sitting in the coffee shop that afternoon just drinking coffee and soft drinks and juices with snacks. The phrase Mandy is referring to is lapak, which is when you relax, chill out with friends and enjoy that simplicity. Of course, rural Sarawak isn't simple or easier than any other lives. But this word, for taking time, exists and is so much a part of life. Malaysians appreciate the simplicity that food, drink and togetherness can bring. And also, that is how nostalgia works. It remembers the good things and longs for it. The packing is something we should all incorporate more often. One last thing before we go. The international trade of pepper, like many supply chains in our capitalist world, is opaque and impersonal. The language used in marketing Sarawak pepper is flowery and romanticised, but often erases the non-white bodies that labour to produce the pepper that we consume. Our trade routes are built on the unequal extraction of resources from the global south to the global north, and it will take years, decades or even centuries to change this. No one is getting it all right. But what we do need is to be honest and accountable for the segments of the supply chains that we actively participate in. Because if we can't name it, how can we fix it? I was lucky enough to learn from speaking to people off record in Sarawak that there exists local groups independent of the Malaysian Pepper Board looking for ways to create greater transparency. One such organisation, Karis Group, is a Sarawak company focused on transparency, locally grown ingredients and working directly with farmers. Keelan Woon, a director for Karis Group, hopes that their efforts will help encourage young people to get back into farming and ensure the future of this industry. The things we covered in this episode only scratch the surface. I am always looking to learn more from those brave enough to sincerely face the ugly truths in the ways that colonialism persists in the modern world. This episode has been quite a roller coaster. 
We've traced the trade route of Sarawak pepper from east to west, from the contemporary farm to the metropolitan table. Pepper has made me re-look at my past, my childhood, my nostalgia, and see it as a place of labour. Pepper farms are spaces of complexity where multiple negotiations are constantly in play. As Dr. Michael R. Dove puts it so succinctly, It's fascinating to think of how these sort of postage stamp little fields of pepper in the middle of the rainforest, no mechanization, maybe no chemicals, but how how they tie us to them, right? You look at this little postage stamp field and you're, you're looking at a global commodity chain. Thank you so much for listening to episode three of Taste of Place. Thank you to my guests today, Dr. Michael R. Dove, Larry Siet, Mandy Yin, and Thomas Heal. And be on the lookout for Karis Group ingredients when in Sarawak. I'd like to thank my producer, Catherine Yang, audio editor, Diana Kapulong, researcher, Caroline Merrifield, and intern, Ashley Choi. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer, Celine Glazier, sound engineer, Max Cuddlechuck, music director, Catherine Yang, managing producer, Marvin Yeur, associate producer, Quentin Lebeau, production coordinator, Shabnam Fadosi, production assistant, Maha Saned, and publicist, Melissa Horton. Theme music created by Catherine Yang and cover art created by Whetstone art director, Alex Bowman. You can learn more about this podcast on whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, on TikTok at Whetstone Media, and subscribe to our Spotify and YouTube channel, Whetstone Media, for more podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com.